Right, so this morning, we are going to take on the entire book of Jude. Jude is at the very end of your Bibles, almost to the very end, anyway. Um, 1909 in most of the Pew Bibles, it is only 25 verses long. Now, Jude is tied with one other book in terms of length. Does anybody know what it is, what the other book is? You're shy, that's fine. If somebody said Philemon, you're absolutely right. And there is only one book in the Bible that is shorter than Jude and Philemon. Obadiah, that's right. Obadiah has 21 verses. Jude and Philemon have 25 verses. And then I would say the next shortest book is probably Haggai, which only has two chapters. But today we are to Jude, and I'm starting to hear pages stop flapping. The words will be on the screen as well. We'll begin at verse 1, the book of Jude. <coughs> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt that I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, rejecting authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, Autumn trees without fruit, fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up to their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. 
See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. <coughs> but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be the glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. So Jude claims at the beginning of the letter that he wanted to write to the early church about something else. He wanted to write to this early church who at this time was, was suffering uh, persecution as well. Uh, he wanted to write to them about the salvation that was won for us uh, in and through and by Jesus Christ. But as we quickly learn in this letter, uh, the church was facing um, a lot more than just persecution in the first century. It had also been infiltrated by, by false teachers who were uh, busy perverting the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jude, inspired by the Holy Spirit, addresses that issue instead. Although I would argue there is much about salvation in this letter as well. But his commands to believers early on in his letter is simply this. Hey guys, you got to contend for the faith. You've got to fight for the faith that you have received from God's word and from the testimony of the apostles. And faithful Christians throughout history have found direction and encouragement from Jude's letter as well. Because brothers and sisters, we all know that people in every generation infiltrate the church, that different gospels become vogue and then out of style and then back into style. It's almost cyclical in nature. It's as though humanity just is desperate once it has found that treasure in the field, that treasure beyond all price to, to try and enhance it in some way, to tweak it in order to make it fit the lives we want to live a little bit better. And so, yes, Christians throughout history have taken comfort and assurance and also their marching orders from this small book. The logic of the first half of Jude's letter goes something like this. 
There is a faith or a body of teaching that was once for all given. So this is the word of God, which never fades, once for all given. Therefore, this is a faith that is worth contending for. It's worth fighting for. But this faith is repeatedly threatened from without and at times within the church. Jude says that false teaching leads to judgment, leads to hindrances in the Christian life, could possibly lead to destruction. And even so, we should not be surprised and we should not be alarmed when confronted with these false teachings in the world and even in other churches. And so Jude warns believers to be on guard, to beware of false teachers, particularly within the church. More specifically, and he says this early on, we are to beware of those who are teaching some form of cheap grace, okay? Now, cheap grace is actually a phrase that probably many of you have heard And cheap grace is a phrase that was maybe not coined, but at least made popular in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. I have just a little excerpt to read for you. Looks like it's going to be on the screens as well. But it explains what is meant by cheap grace. This is Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church It is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Got it? Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. (coughs) It is, in summary, the error of believing that God's grace gives us a license or gives us permission to sin, okay? And Jude has some very, very harsh words against those who were spreading this heresy, He compares them to those who came out of Egypt and were destroyed because of their disobedience and unbelief. He compares them to the angels that rebelled against God and and fell from heaven. He compares them to the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah who gave themselves over to sexual immorality. He accuses them of the same fatal mistakes as Cain who killed his brother Abel out of anger, Balaam, who sold out God and agreed to curse God's people, Uh, Korah, who was swallowed by the earth because he challenged Moses' leadership. Jude refers to them as men whose condemnation was written about long ago, following the example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire, wandering stars from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. So I would say that Jude is pretty serious about this. 
And Jude writes with the utmost urgency to warn Christians of being seduced by false teaching, whether in the first century or throughout all the centuries or to today. See, believers have this tendency, myself included, to become very forgetful about the pitfalls of the Christian life. That's why I gave these young men those reminders earlier in the service when they professed their faith. Believers can also become very forgetful about the great truths of our faith, and it is actually quite dangerous to become forgetful about any of those things. See, history has seen the rise and fall of many religious movements. And most of them, here's the dangerous part, they begin with a kernel of truth or what what seems like wisdom. But then they quickly veer into territory that is nothing more than fantasy or heresy. And yet people, even Christians, continue generation after generation to get sucked into these modes of belief trading what the Word of God actually says for what we would like the Word of God to say. And so as we're considering all of these ways that we are bombarded with other-than-Christian worldviews in our lives, I hope that you'll see that the book of Jude proves to be both relevant and helpful as we navigate all of those lies and half-truths. That's the reason why it was written. It was written to keep us on the right track, to to keep us from getting off the right path. It was written to keep us from becoming lost or confused. And also, it was written to assure us that we shouldn't be surprised or alarmed by the presence or the popularity or the success of false teachers and false teachings. Don't get seduced by their success and popularity. Don't even get discouraged about it. After all, the Bible warns in many other places, other than Jude, Jude references a few of them, that false teachers will come. Rejecting ordained authority, looking out for number one, promising soul-satisfying strategies, and boasting their influence and success. In fact, there have been times in history and sometimes even today, it seems like false gospels are winning the day over gospel truth. It's easy to feel that way sometimes. Of course, uh, Jude, you notice, also promises that one day all of that will be exposed for what it truly is. Remember what he says in verse 14 and 15, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. But that said, everything that Jude says in this letter about how we are to live today presupposes, presupposes that it is the important responsibility of every Christian, each and every one of us, to know the truth of our faith, to care deeply about it, and to protect it in our families and in this congregation and beyond. Jude tells us, 
and this is maybe going to be scary for some of you, that we need to be personally prepared to contend to fight for our faith. And in a comprehensive and positive way, Jude gives us instruction about how we not only are to survive in this world, but to thrive, to thrive in this world that is full of false teachings, false philosophies, false ideas, where we can thrive and grow in grace with the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into that, because that's the very positive message in this book. We see it already in verse 1, where Jude makes reference, I would argue, to our very identity. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Notice those three things that he says about you as Christians. You are called, you are beloved by God the Father, and you are kept by Jesus Christ, kept for Jesus Christ. And when Jude tells us that we're called, he's reminding us that, that we have been grafted into this story that's, that's so much bigger than ourselves. We have been called not only to experience and enjoy divine blessings from God, but we have been called by divine grace and by divine choice because human beings never take the initiative over God. We don't choose God. God chooses us first. God always moves first. And so just as God called Abraham in the New Testament, we too have been called into this this grand adventure in which we conspire to bless the world in which we live with the salvation blessings of God in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So in this way, we realize right off the bat that Jude is telling us, hey, remember who you are. The first step in navigating the lies that this world would tell you the first step in navigating the false teachings that you're going to confront and face in your life is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. And not only are we called, he goes on to say, we are also beloved, beloved by God the Father. And I so often think this about myself. I think, I think this for all of us. Shouldn't we delight more in this life? Delight in the depth of God the Father's love for us in Jesus Christ. I think about that a lot. I'm a pastor. But I still don't think that I think about it enough. This is life-shaping stuff. To be loved, be loved by the God of the universe. And Jude reminds us, hey, that is your identity. That is something that you can claim here and now. This is how the word of God describes us, beloved by God. And finally, Jude reminds us that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, a way that we describe this truth in Reformed theology can be found with this phrase from, from the canons of Dort. The perseverance, or uh, better, the preservation of the saints. 
which simply reinforces what, what Jesus himself tells us in the Gospels, that we can never and will never be snatched from God's hands once he has chosen us and claimed us for his own. John Calvin once put it this way. He said, at any moment, Satan might snatch us a hundred times over into his ready clutches were we not safe and in the protection of Jesus Christ. I love that. Yes, we are kept by Jesus Christ. But you know, as we'll see a little bit um, more extensively in a minute, we have a part to play in this as well. Our salvation doesn't depend on it, understands, but we have a part to play. Because we too have a part to play in keeping ourselves in God's love. Keeping ourselves in God's love means reminding ourselves and each other that we have an identity, we have a future, because God does love us as his own children. But it's also even more than that. And I know that Jude would put his stamp of approval on this because this is scripture interpreting scripture. Look at John 15, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so keeping ourselves in the love of God means what? Obedience. Obedience to God's word, God's will, God's purposes for our lives. And so we are called, we are loved, we are kept. Brothers and sisters, when we truly realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we cannot help but praise him and thank him and live for him. In fact, you could say that, that these three divine graces impact our entire worldview with regard to our purpose in this life. Jude reminds us of who we are as believers. And by virtue of who we are, Jude assures us that we have all that we need to stand firm in the face of false teachings in our own day. But you know, Jude, if you look closely, expands even more on how God has equipped us to obey his commands, to do his work, and to live for him and to his glory. Consider what he said in verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. You see that? We are kept by God in Jesus Christ, but here, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And so here, Jude encourages us to grow in four areas, and this is something that we are to strive to for ourselves and for each other. Those four areas are doctrine, prayer, experience, and hope. So what do I mean by doctrine? Jude encourages us to build ourselves and each other up in the Christian life. And we do this by holding firm to God's word, holding firm to Holy Scripture. 
We do this by holding firm to the apostles' teaching. We do this by holding firm to sound Christian doctrine. Some of you say you don't care about doctrine. But if somebody walked in here and started saying, you know what? I think that God is four persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God found within nature we would have alarm bells go off, wouldn't we? That would be a red flag. So doctrine is important. Doctrine is important. We are to hold firm to sound Christian doctrine. Otherwise, we are going to be easily led astray. The Christian life is built on the foundation of the authoritative and sufficient word of God. Second thing Jude mentions is prayer. Jude encourages us to be people of prayer. We need the power of God to persevere. We are dependent upon God to persevere in this life to the next. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit to persevere. How do we get it? We get it through prayer. Prayer is a means of grace. And under God's guidance and influence, according to his word, with faith and consistency, we will persevere and thrive even through the worst of trials if our prayer life is robust and consistent and strong. Third thing Jude mentions is experience. Jude encourages us to lives of Christian experience. What does that mean? Well, I would argue that this is what he means when he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. What I think it means is not only to to cultivate love for God in our souls, but also to live within the sphere of God's love for us, to live within the Christian community where we can dwell on God's love and remind ourselves of God's love, where we can delight together in God's love, where we can draw strength together from God's love. See, when we are firmly rooted in the knowledge of God's love and grace, we are not going to go out looking for alternative gospels. We're not going to be vulnerable to false teachers or false teachings because we consistently pursue the knowledge of God experientially together as well as doctrinally. So experience and doctrine go together. They always go together. Belief and practice, right? And finally, hope. Jude encourages us to lean into our hope. Well, where does he say that? He didn't even use the word hope. What does it mean to wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life? That is just a picturesque way of talking about our greatest hope. It's a picturesque way of referring to Jesus' second coming. And that, I hope, is what we're all waiting for, right? that we would gladly welcome Jesus today or tomorrow or the next day or any day that he wanted to come. We're ready. We want this. We're about to move into the season of Advent where we think about this even more than usual. And so Jude tells us to wait expectantly for the second coming of Jesus, which means to live as though it could be today, which it might be. In this way, through Jude's reminders to us about our identity in Christ 
And through his encouragement in these areas where, where believers strive for growth, we are equipped to effectively contend for this faith that is once for all given. I've lamented from time to time that in the midst of this fallen world, the church cannot be counted on as a place of total safety and refuge from the lies of the devil. But scripture tells us to recognize that there is never a time when we can completely be safe from false teaching. And so we have to remember that and we have to be on our toes. But also understand, Judah's telling us this so that we don't get discouraged. And so we are ready to stand watch against any teaching that distorts the gospel in any way. But that said, ultimately, it is God himself who stands guard over everything, and that is a great comfort. And so we close with the final two verses, 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. <clears throat> so Jude concludes his letter with praise, which is fitting. It's a wonderful benediction. It's a wonderful doxology, rejoicing in God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, with glory, majesty, power, and authority forever. But did you catch what Jude's reason is for giving this praise? That it is God who will keep us from falling. The one who loves us will keep us for glory and fill us with joy. And so yes, what we talked about earlier is valid. We must keep ourselves in the love of God. We should do everything that we can. But God is keeping us as well. And he does the heavy lifting. And so both are true. And both must be held together. So then work, press on, fight on, keep going. But as you do, remember that God is at work in you to do and to will and to accomplish his good purposes for your life, for your life in his grand plan. He fights with you, he fights for you, and he will keep you to the end and beyond. Amen. Let's come before God in prayer.